Um, I did want to comment, last week I referenced that if, the, if this idea, this concept of the, um, of the divine council, this, these little g gods that are referenced all throughout scripture, these, these divine beings that God has created that, that have authority and power and kind of and dominion in the same way in the heavens that say we do on the earth, that man does on the earth. And, and there's a whole lot of teaching there. And a lot of it is very new and, and really cool research um, just in the last few years. If that's interesting to you or fascinating to you, I, I do want to recommend, I said it last week in the second service, but I'll say again, the, the, um, the Naked Bible podcast, who is the same guy who wrote um, The Unseen Realms, is it Realms? Um, unseen, I can't remember if it's Unseen Realm or Unseen Realms, but the, um, uh, and then also my very favorite actually is the Bible Project um, podcast. You've probably seen their videos. They're phenomenally well done, extremely well researched, um, and I love their podcast. I, it's actually right now probably one of my favorite uh, podcast to listen to as they are on the cutting edge of researching what it means to understand the Bible through the lens of the Jewish people who wrote it. Um, that being said, I also last week, in the midst of talking about that, I referenced the idea of Baal, Baal being the kind of bad, one of the bad guy gods of the, the deep Old Testament. And, uh, and this is who the Canaanites, the, the Baal worship was a big part of what the Canaanites um, were a part of. And in the midst of that, I said Baal, which means Lord, and it does, the, the Baal worship, the pantheon of the Baals, the, the Baal worship was common, and it, just, it does just mean Lord. In that, I said, in fact, the Hebrew for Lord of Lords would be Baal of Baals, okay? Well, there's a sense in which that might be accurate in that if you said Baal of Baals, a Hebrew listener would know that you're referencing Lord of Lords, but here's where I made the mistake. That is not the way the Bible says Lord of Lords in the Old Testament. There's another Hebrew word, Adonai, which is, is the word that is actually used, Adonai of Adonais, Lord of Lords. And this is one of those things that, I mean, I'm, I make mistakes all the time, but, but this is one of those that I didn't want someone later to like quote me saying that and then find out, wow, that was just wrong. So that's, I guess that's a bummer, I know. So <laughs> this, this one's on me this time, the face palm is mine. So um, I did, just didn't want anyone to make that mistake moving forward. The, the, when you find the two different places in the Old Testament in the Hebrew Scriptures where it says Lord of Lords, it is Adonai of Adonais, not Baal of Baals. Um, so that's, it's, again, fascinating to study, a great, a great thing to dig into, um, and, and really new, I love new understanding, new research um, that is, and, and how you know it's in the Christian world, a lot of times just new theologies are just, just old heresies kind of rewashed. In this case, what you have is a new understanding that actually is connected to the ancient and accurate traditions of the people who wrote at the time. So again, big fan of that stuff. I'll talk, I'm sure it will, you will see more of that um, working into, because you know what a big fan I am of having a correct Jewish context for Scripture, um, understanding the mindset, because it's, it's the context it was being taught in and lived out in. Um, that being said, I also want to comment on, as we're talking about life, it seemed natural that today would be a good moment just to take a minute and reference um, as our church continues to grow and as, I mean, meaning the number of people who are coming and being involved. Um, we had a couple hundred people here, adults here on Wednesday nights. Um, I meant to, I got to tell John Sturrock that we're gonna have to create some kind of competition because two weeks ago there were more youth than there were adults on Wednesday night. And, uh, and so we're gonna have to create a like, so if, if, if he, if there are more youth than adults on Wednesday night across the spring, then he gets a free haircut. And uh, if there aren't, then we shave his head. So that's a, <laughs> sound like a fair trade? Perfect. All right. So um, uh, that being said, uh, I want to jump into, there's some different life groups going on. 
that, that we do, we have Sunday morning life groups that go on um, all the time. We have other, and, and I mean dozens of small group, discipleship groups, that kind of stuff that are going on all the time as a part of our church, which is a sign of a healthy church that people don't, they don't wait for permission to host a few people for lunch once a week, to teach through something or talk through something or whatever. That's, that's healthy, normal discipleship as it should be. Um, our emphasis on helping people get engaged in smaller groups, what we call life groups around here, will be an emphasis that you'll see grow over the next couple of years um, here at the church, and so um, be looking for that. But right now, we've got a few that are available that, are, that run for a semester. Um, you can find these online if you go to um, southspring.org and you go to the events page or you go to the ministries page. Either way, you choose life groups, and it tells you how to register for them. Um, so just a couple, we have Grief Share running, um, that's, that's one, it's been running for a little while, it continues to run, you can join it at any point. Um, one called Walking His Trail, that, um, that Eric Helgeson has taken the leadership on, anyone is welcome to that, just, just what's going on and, and what, we're, what we're experiencing in, in following Christ. There's a special needs families group, this is a great group, I usually go and, and share and speak and talk with them at least once during the semester and and uh, man, what a, what a great need it is. If you have a special needs member of your family, the blessing of being able to come alongside others with that is gold. Um, a Sabbath study that Bo Keeling is leading um, called Breathe for Women. And, uh, and so again, ladies, you can sign up for that one. Um, the Christ-Centered Parenting class. Um, there is one about Christ-Shared, meaning how we, how we engage in the conversations naturally um, in regards to how, how we weave who we are as Christians and our, and our Lord and Savior, how we weave that into normal conversations. Um, I, I, would be a, I, would, I would really encourage you, this is not some, hey, come manufacture intimacy thing that, that sometimes is a mistake that groups make, churches can make. This is an opportunity to go, learn together, make friends, get to know some people that may sit on another side of the room than you or come to another service than you and so who you may not get to interact with much. You may make good friends with somebody, and then you develop a friendship and, a, and even a further, deeper relationship in regards to discipleship. That's what, that's what our life groups are intended to accomplish. So I hope you're doing that. If you're not involved with one, I really would love to encourage you to do that. Again, I know many of you already are with ones that are either already closed or already full, or we're just, from the very beginning, just a, a group of friends gathering together to pray or learn together. That counts. Uh, that's discipleship. That's what we're all about, one of the, one of the three pillars of who we are. Um, and I was also going to comment, you may have noticed, I just, I love talking about this kind of stuff sometimes, so you may have noticed in your bulletin is this little sheet, this is events going on at other churches. Um, about once a month we put something in our bulletin about stuff going on at other churches and uh, activities you may want to be a part of. Um, and just a reminder, we're not in competition with other Bible-believing, Christ-fearing, uh, Christ-following churches, and, uh, and so that's... You, you may even go there and say, wow, this fits even better with who we are as a family. This may be we, maybe this is where we should go and connect and worship and community and serve. And if that's the case, if it's a Bible teaching church and a Christ following church, that's not a loss to the kingdom. And we're concerned about losses and wins for the kingdom, not losses and wins for an individual local church. So um, we want you to be engaged, involved, and invested wherever you are, learning and growing wherever you are. And if that's here, thank you. That's awesome. Um, if, if that's not here, or if there's a need that can be met or something for your family met someplace else, again, we're not in competition from that. We're, there we're, there are, are brother and sister churches all around us. I mean, and literally, like here, all, all around us. Like you throw a rock and hit a church. So, um, so, and most of them are just awesome. Uh, so anyway, we're, we're proud to partner with all of them and, and proud to let you know about stuff's going on. And some of it looks kind of cool, by the way. Like anything that says confections banquet, that automatically has my attention. So I don't, 
Don't know what that means, but uh, um, I'm interested. All right, so uh, jumping into the passage here. So we've, we're going to, this, this passage, as we're working through this and, and working through John and John 10 and kind of wrapping up John 10, Jesus has been talking with them in Jerusalem in the temple. And, and he's been telling them, this is what we need to be, this is what you need to be doing, this is what you need to be thinking. And he's, he's made it clear to them, this is not just a, these aren't just words. He's offering empirical evidence, clearly the behavior that he's had performing these miracles that many of them have seen or experienced first or second hand. And he's saying, obviously, I'm not just a human. This isn't something that humans do. And there's, there's a very limited number of sources that I could be going to for this kind of power. And, and it's... And so you've got a few choices to choose from, and that's what he goes on to say. They've decided they're going to kill him. And he says to them in verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. In other words, you got rocks? Throw them. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand the father is in me, (coughs) and I am in the father. This oneness with the father description that Jesus keeps giving is incredibly offensive to them. And the fact that he has evidence to back his claims isn't sufficient for them. So verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped them. This is empirical evidence he's offering this. Where do I get this power from? If you you got to be asking that question, but they don't want to ask these questions. They're just mad. He wants them to believe, know, and keep knowing. That's the Greek language here when it says um, understand the Father is in me, believe my works, etc. This language, to believe and to keep on believing, know this to be the case. They don't accept him. This is the sixth reference in the book of John to them arresting or trying to kill him. They are 0 for 6 so far. This helps you understand. When the day finally comes, when they arrest him and kill him, it is not they that have accomplished something. He can walk away from these at any point. Eventually, he's not going to walk away from one of these, and that is 100% entirely his choice. And we'll get there when we get there. But So he didn't stay in Jerusalem, though. He leaves, and he goes to, and this is a clear point that's being made here. So he goes to the Jordan River, or the other side of the Jordan River, where a clear near where John the Baptist, three years and further back, was baptizing people and teaching. Now remember, John the Baptist was delivering the first message and the most important linear message of the Bible. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, The kingdom of God is here. In other words, the sovereign is here. The reign of God is at hand. And so that's the message, and then he prepared them for that. So listen to what it says in verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had baptized first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said... John did no sign, but everything John said about this man was true. Notice, they, unlike the people of Jerusalem, they see a difference. The people of Jerusalem would not believe his, his signs as evidence. It's not that they lacked the necessary evidence to believe. It's that they lacked the willingness to believe. It was right in their face. What they lacked was the willingness, not the evidence. In this situation, what you have is the opposite. These people, look at, they look at his signs, and they hear his teaching. And by the way, his teaching is remarkably similar to John the Baptist's. So then what's different? What does this passage tell you they noticed was different between Jesus and John the Baptist? Signs. Notice that's exactly what the Jews in Jerusalem were unwilling to accept. The people here are willing to accept this, and when they do, 
Many believed in him here. They are, by the way, right near, um, uh, probably right near a, a village or a compound of the Essenes. The, the Essenes were a, a sect within Judaism that believed in separating themselves out. Many people think that, that John the Baptist would have had a draw to the Essenes. In fact, some people have argued that John the Baptist was an Essene. I, I don't, typically, I don't agree with that, but it's very possible um, and so what you have is the Essenes who were, who were withdrawn from the culture, were celebrating and worshiping Yahweh in their own way, separate from the culture, creating little compounds out in the desert like this, um, separating out like that. It may be that many of them are the ones who are coming and hearing and seeing the signs and going, well, this is who we've been waiting for. We get the Dead Sea Scrolls from the Essenes. Um, they, they buried scrolls that they were no longer using because they didn't believe in burning them because it was God's word. And so they would bury them and they've been found numerous times since then. Um, Jesus performed miracles, John did not. This is here, Jesus is not just another John. Unlike Jerusalem, here in the wilderness, many accepted that he was the Messiah, the Son, the one and only, and one with the Father. Now, here he is with new converts in a place where people are listening to him and learning from him with his apostles. Chapter 11, now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So if you've grown up in the church, you certainly know who Lazarus is. You know what's coming. I mean, if this is the first time to read the book, this would be an intriguing little way to start this chapter. Jesus is near the Jordan River, but there's a man in Bethany who's sick. His name is Lazarus. This is how this, this, little, this little interlude begins. Now here's what struck me, and I'm going to talk more about this at the end of the sermon. If you've grown up in church or if you know the Bible, the story of Lazarus is one of the most shocking stories anywhere. It's one of the most, uh, a great stumbling block kind of story. Yes, we have a hard time believing that a man could walk on water. That doesn't seem likely. Yes, we have a hard time believing in all these different things that a man born blind could be made to see. Yes, that sounds, that sounds unbelievable. But some part of our brain's willing to allow that. But what we're about to have before this chapter is over is a man who is stone cold dead. And then he's going to be alive. And that violates everything about our experience. That's a problem for us. Now, it's always been odd to me that there are people who are theists. They believe there is a God who created everything. But they don't believe in the Christian faith because of the story of Lazarus or Jesus being raised from the dead. That's always struck me as strange. Like, so you believe that there is a creator God who can create something from nothing. You believe there's a creator God who can take lifeless things and suddenly give it life. But in your mind, dead is a barrier that even that God could not cross? That makes no sense to me. Like, that doesn't seem like a big deal compared to starting life in the first place. Giving life back would seem like a minor miracle compared to starting it. But for some people, that's a problem. It actually is. So here's what I want you to note. Look at verse 2. This story of Lazarus is so important. It is one that every Christian who's, who's grown up in church, read the Bible, knows. And yet... John is going to anchor it with a different story. It was Mary, so the sister, Mary. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Here's what's wild. In the, narr in the narrative, this almost certainly has not happened yet. We get, this, we get this account at another time in the book of Matthew where this happens. But I want you to just already be considering the fact that the story of a man being raised from the dead is being anchored 
in the account of a woman worshiping Jesus, not the other way around. This is significant, I think. Now, who are these people? John thinks you know them. He thinks you know Lazarus and Martha and Mary. Um, They're people who Jesus is good friends with. It's who he stays with when he's in Bethany. He stays in Bethany when he's going to Jerusalem. Um, Jerusalem is just a couple of miles away over the Mount of Olives. When we go, we will stand at the top of the, near the top of the Mount of Olives, and Bethany will be behind us, and, and the Jerusalem will be right in front of us. And so it's, it's not that long a walk by their standards um, between these two places. Who is Lazarus? Lazarus' name means God is my help or God has helped. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Eleazar, um, who we see all throughout the Old Testament. see people named Eleazar, which is, there's some cool guys. Some people argue, by the way, that Lazarus is none other than the rich young ruler. Um, the way those stories are put together and some, some of the Gospels make it seem that way. That Lazarus himself may be the rich young ruler, the man who came to Jesus, who Jesus blessed him, and then said, you only like one more thing, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And the man walks away, head down, because he can't fathom doing that. Now, if this is accurate, this is the kind of thing that drives me nuts, by the way, about the book of John. And John apologizes for it at the end of his book. I know there were so many other stories. I'm sorry I didn't write them down. There just wasn't space. I mean, that's really what John is going to say in the end of John. Like, I could have written so many more stories. The story of Lazarus is one of those, like, um, I'd, I'd like to know more about Lazarus. This seems like an intriguing cat. He's dead, and then he's back alive. Like, does he teach seminars? Did he write a book? Did they make a movie about him? Like, seems like an important character. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention Lazarus. They don't mention this miracle. Why not? I'd like to know about that. Some people think it's because Lazarus was still alive when Mark, in this order, Mark, Matthew, and Luke were written, and that the last thing they wanted to do was get the word out that there was a man who'd been dead who's back alive because that would have drawn all the ire and anger and, and certainly the assassins of Rome and, and the Jews to take him out. He would have been persecuted. So maybe that's why he isn't mentioned in the others. We don't know. We don't know. I want to know more. We don't get it now. Maybe later. But we don't get it. We don't get it for now. Mary, his sister, means, I know, what does Mary mean? Bitter. Probably the most common name of Israeli women at this time because their life was under Roman rule was bitter. Martha is the feminine word for the word master. Um, as one commentary said, not kidding, a modern commentary said, like, Martha Stewart. That's all you got to say. Like that's, that's who we're dealing with with Martha is, is a Martha Stewart type. She's the boss. She's in charge. She runs the household. Um, Jesus wants to be clear. John wants us to be clear on who they are and what their significance is in Jesus' life. So a message arrives from Jesus while he's near the Jordan with this. So the sister sent him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. That's all. That's the, I mean, that's apparently that's the whole message. And Jesus is supposed to know what to do for that. Isn't that wild, by the way? That is such a simple. So many commentaries referenced that this is all the sisters sent, is these few words. Probably a messenger on foot. Hey, Mary and Martha from Bethany, they say that you need to know that the one you love is ill. And Jesus is going to respond to that. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. We'll comment on that in a second, but here's what I want you to hear first. This is a really cool concept. We, we, um, I teach an identity class on Friday mornings um, to a group of students. And one of the things they're supposed to do is they're supposed to find a, 
a statement, a foundation for their identity. What is that foundation? One of the things we talk about is, um, is sometimes looking to the writers, uh, other writers and, other, and, and hymns, are, for example, are just filled with identity statements. This last Friday, I referenced one of those hymns, um, the reference, Take My Life, the song, the hymn, Take My Life. And, and the entire song is a, is a statement of foundation. And, but another one that came to me was this one. If those of you who grew up in, in a church that sang hymns, um, I have to leave out a little part of it. But what a great foundation for identity. It's enough that he loves us. The one who you loved is ill. This is what, this is what matters about our identity. You are the one that Jesus loves. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is what matters most about us. This is the foundation of our statement. Now, this is the foundation of our identity, that statement. He loves us. That's, that, to me, is so cool. The, the hymn, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. What a great foundation for who we are. Oh, how he loves me. So that everything is built on that. Everything else that can be taken from you, because that cannot be taken from you. That's very powerful. It's enough that, they love, that he loves him. Now, one of the things that strikes me in this is, is as we see this language, um, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Think about this. I had never thought about this until commentary I read this week asked the question. The pulpit commentary asked this question. What, if Jesus is the protagonist of the book of John, and he clearly is, who is the antagonist of the book of John? And so thinking about that, like the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, Satan, and the, the pulpit commentary makes the um, argument that the antagonist of the book of John is death. That Jesus is the protagonist and death is the antagonist. I really like that. Remember that the purpose of the book of John, we find in John 20, verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This illness will not lead to death. Probably a, a translation that would make more sense to us given the context, because of course, not only does it technically lead to death, um, he's, Lazarus is almost certainly dead when Jesus says this. And when you do the, the math, Jesus is almost certainly, when Jesus says this will not lead to death, almost certainly Lazarus is dead by the time he says that. But the language really offers this. It does not prove fatal. Jesus is actually making an ironic point. It doesn't end in death. It doesn't lead to the point of death and then stop leading you. Its result will not be death. It will be the glorification of the Son of God similar to the man born blind. Verse five, <clears throat> one of the great non sequiturs in the Bible. <laughs> Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed for two days longer where he was. <laughs> That's always struck me. He's like, wait, what? Wait, what? That makes no sense. He loved them so much that he didn't even go at all for two days. Now, again, part of that probably is the fact that, truthfully, Lazarus is already dead, and dead people aren't in a hurry. There's no, there's no rush on Jesus getting there if Lazarus is already dead. That's part of it. Also, remember, think of the theme that has run through the book of John, like that it wasn't time for Jesus to reveal himself at the wedding. 
And it wasn't his time to go to the festival or the feast in John chapter 7 until halfway through it. And every time they've tried to arrest him, it wasn't yet his time to be arrested. This yet again is apparently Jesus is listening to the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and it isn't time to go to Bethany yet. Well, but Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is dead. And? Jesus is following perfectly the chronology that God has for him on earth. It's not time. Well, the external circumstances sure seem to create a lot of urgency, uh-huh, yeah, they do. I, I, I would go with that. That doesn't mean it's time. But fascinating to kind of grasp what it must have been like to exist as Jesus, following the timetable exactly and understanding what it was. That'd be nice. Um, so then after he said this he, to the disciples, then after this he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again after two days. I think it's interesting that he tarried, but he did. It's probably 30, day, 30 miles or so from where they were. It'd be about 30 miles to Bethany, probably. And so that's a good, hard, long day's travel for sure. We'll reference that maybe in a second. But it, when he gets there, they're going to say that Lazarus has been dead for four days. So by the time the people left Bethany and headed to where he was at the Jordan, and then two days waiting and then one day back, if Lazarus is dead four days, he's probably dead already. Who knows? But Bethany is just over the Mount of Olives, right next to Jerusalem, where they were just trying to kill him, and the disciples are a little concerned about this. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go back there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This is a fascinating picture, and if you can imagine what it was like 2,000 years ago, I don't know if any of you grew up as kind of you know, country kids like I did out in the woods, where you literally, without warning, would suddenly realize, I'm going to spend the night out in the woods, and so you didn't come prepared or anything like that. And so you would, you would not have a flashlight with you. If you've, never, if you've ever experienced that, just staying out in the woods without all the stuff that you might want to have out there, then, then you may have done what I did as a kid, and that's try to make a torch. Um, where you, you just take a stick and you wrap it with something and then you light it on fire and you, you try to guide your way through it. Anybody ever tried that? Yeah, how effective is that? Nothing. It is, it is, it is horrible. All it would do to, would be to identify you to other people in the dark. It, it, you can't see your hand at the bottom of the torch very well. A torch offers almost no light. I love how in Indiana Jones movies and stuff like that, you know, they get out there and they light a torch and they hold it up and like all the spotlights come on off stage. They're like looking at a room this big like this, like, wow, look at the, like, no, sorry, three feet, that's it. You got nothing, nothing at all. I'm just, I'm just telling you, if you've never tried it, try it. it it's, it's worthless. Torches are no good. If that's all the source of light that you had, you would not want to be walking around Israel in the dark. Some of you have been to Israel, you've seen it, you've tried to walk on it. If you can imagine, no roads except Roman roads, which are just more rock, and you're living in this giant rock quarry that we call Israel, and you're trying to walk around in the dark, you're going to break something. It is not safe. And that's assuming something doesn't get you. And so Jesus is using an analogy, a concept these people fully grasp. There's 12 hours in a day. That's when you walk. When it's dark, you stop. So certainly one of the points Jesus is making is, it's day, we walk. This is a concept. For us as Christians, it's day, we walk. It's harvest time. We harvest. 
This isn't the time to sit. This is the time to walk. Certainly that's part of the expression he's giving. Another one is, his day is running short. We are somewhere around December, between December and April at this point in Jesus' life. In April, he's going to be crucified. And so somewhere between there, you can imagine, if Jesus, to what degree Jesus knows that's coming, and I think he's got a good sense of the imminence of it, to understand this is Jesus saying, listen, it's daylight. I've got work to do, and it's going to be dark. So I've got to work now. I think that's part of it. Also, he's reminding them that he is the light. We've seen this a couple of times in John, right? Um, in John 8, 12, they need to trust him after all. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't you love that after six failed attempts to arrest or execute Jesus, the disciples are worried the next one will work? This is, this is I don't have it in the notes, but this could be another one of those face palm moments like, have you guys been paying attention? They're not going to arrest me until I tell them to. It's kind of that tombstone moment like, no, B, and I'm not going to let you arrest me today type of thing. Like, Jesus says, it's not time. So he's not going to be arrested. They're not going to get him. John 9, 4 through 5. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. I say we go to Bethany. Trust me, I'm the light of the world. You follow me. When I say walk, you follow the light. That's how this works. All of these things mixed into this together. So the disciples, after saying these things, he said to them, by the way, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, so I'm going to go wake him up, right? That's pretty cool. What the disciples, what they hear is, really, he's asleep. Well, if he's asleep, then why don't you let him sleep, right? If he's asleep, he might, he might sleep and get better, right? Now, notice that that just happens to coincide with not having to go to Bethany, where they're trying to kill them. Just, just a lucky coincidence, right? That, hey, if, if he's sleeping, remember, they're 30 miles walk from Bethany, and they're going like, no, no, if he's napping, we don't want to show up and wake him. I'd say there's a decent chance in 30 miles walk time, he won't still be napping, right? This is a great example where either they're completely misunderstanding him, or I think intentionally kind of misunderstanding him. Either way, they, they also deserve the facepalm treatment, I think, on this one. So, Really, guys, this is the, but I, th I think this is significant in that they are saying, hey, 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 look, there's a way, then we don't have to go to Bethany because they don't want to go to Bethany because they know eventually one of these times they're going to arrest Jesus. And when they do, they're probably going to arrest his followers. And when they kill Jesus, they're going to kill his followers. We need to stay as far away from Jerusalem as possible. Bethany is two miles from it. Bad idea. We don't want to go. Let's let, let's let Lazarus sleep. That would work out. See, see, it's a win for everybody. We don't have to go. He will recover. Verse 13, John, because he always likes to make sure you understand. Um, now, Jesus was actually speaking about his death. They thought, notice they. I love that. Not we. Uh-huh, John. Yeah, right. That's a, right. <laughs> they were, those guys were totally misunderstanding Jesus. I'm imagining, so all the disciples are almost certainly dead by the time John wrote this, but if any of them around being like, really, John, they? Anyway, sorry. Um, okay, so, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Oh, good, thanks, John. I didn't, I didn't follow that that was the mistake that was happening. It's a, I think this is, anyway, it's beautiful. John loves to, every once in a while, John steps in and like states something that's so obvious um, that, that he's, he often is kind of, 
um, kind of tongue-in-cheek, like that's, that's what John's known for. Like, okay, good. He, he must have done it constantly. I love that there's a clear personality for this man that we can get to know a little bit. We all know people who do that. So, so Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. No, no more euphemisms. No more, listen, the boy's dead. Verse 15, for your sake, I'm glad. I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. So that you will understand maybe finally who it is you're dealing with. Who it is who you've been following all this time. That you will understand what I mean when I say life. I mean life. I mean I am the God of life. Death has no power with me. I represent life completely. Now, so Thomas the twin. I'm just going to warn you real quick. I'm going to warn you. Next week Paul's going to preach and he's going to start with this verse. And Paul is going to try to convince you that this is a noble statement on Thomas's behalf. Okay? I'm, just, I'm warning you of that. Don't buy it. Okay? He's going to try. I'm just, but I'm trying to get your hearts ready to not believe what Paul says next week when he gets up and says, this is a noble... Paul and I have been arguing about this for 15 years. So, so Thomas called the twins, still his disciples. I think this is Thomas going, fine. Whatever. We'll all go to Jerusalem and die together. That's what I think is going on here. I think Jesus says, like, we're going to go to Jerusalem. And Thomas is like, well, I guess we'll all just go die then. I mean, that's just <laughs> fine. That's what I think is happening. Now, listen, Thomas is my favorite of the apostles because he's a skeptic. I praise God that we get Thomas. If it wasn't for Thomas, then, then what we have is, is the 10 disciples later, the 10 apostles later going, Jesus was here. He's risen from the dead. And Thomas going, no, he wasn't. I don't believe you, Tim. He's traveled with them for three years. He knows them so well, and yet when they tell him, Jesus came back, he goes, no, no, sorry, not buying it. I'm not buying it until I stick my hand in his side and my fingers through his arms. I'm not buying that Jesus is back from the dead. You guys made a mistake. That is a skeptic. I, you gotta love a skeptic at that level, like until I see it. And then here's what's gonna happen. The reason I believe this is a, an Eeyore, sarcastic, fine, whatever kind of statement is because the skeptic in him has yet to be fully convinced of who he's dealing with. I don't think Thomas understands it yet any more than the rest of them do. After Thomas puts his hand in Jesus' side and his fingers through Jesus' arm, and he is convinced of this, this man is so convinced that he will spend the last years of his life traveling as far as he can get and as wide as he can go telling people the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the early 100s, Second half of the 100s, right before, before the, maybe before the 100s, during the OOs, Thomas makes it all the way to India from Jerusalem, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ until some Hindu worshipers execute him for it. Now, when you're a skeptic, and the next thing you know, you're in a completely foreign land speaking that truth. See, he doesn't go to Jerusalem to die. He goes all the way to India to die. So, and so later, yes, noble. I mean, you can leave your hearts open if you want to. Let Paul try to convince you that this point it is too, but I don't think so. All right. Now, here's what I want to, I want to share with you this, though. That song, um, the, the song that I was talking about, the take my life, take my life, take my will, take my voice, take my all, this concept, this was the most intense thing for me about this sermon is this right here. I had no, I'd, I'd never made this connection is what I said at the beginning. We're about to go through the story of the man who Jesus raised from the dead. And the story, that story is anchored 
by a story of a woman worshiping Jesus Christ, not the other way around. That leapt out at me for the first time ever. I've never gotten to see anybody raised from the dead. I've never experienced that. I, I would love to. I would think that would be an amazing thing to experience, God raising someone from the dead. I've even prayed for it, not experienced it. Because in my mind, what I want is a grand miracle. But the grand miracle of John 11 is anchored in the simple worship of a woman who just loved Jesus. But that, that struck me as such a, a reversal, a juxtaposition of how my brain works going. So what makes this chapter special, what, lets, what anchors this, this passage for John is that this is about the brother of Mary. You know Mary. Mary is the one who broke the ointment over our Lord and washed him with her hair and worshiped him in a way no one else has. See, the story of Lazarus, there's no connection to the story of Lazarus that says, listen, so long as the gospel is told, the story of Lazarus will be told too. Now, it often is, but listen to this. I'm going to close on this. Matthew 26, 13 is the account of Mary doing this. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So before we ever minimize that we're not been involved in raising someone from the dead, to recognize that the simple devotion of worship apparently speaks so loudly that that is what goes down through all of history connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we do get a chance to be involved in all the time. So I'm going to pray for us that we live lives of worship. So stand, if you will. Father, I am so grateful that we get the opportunity to, to worship you, to, to our lives to be a living sacrifice. That's, that that's a reasonable, a rational way to worship you. Lord, that, that our lives, everything about our lives is handed back to you. The life that you give us is then submitted and sacrificed all the more so to you. Which, of course, I'm sure means we get to experience more life, which we get to sacrifice and submit in worship to you. Lord, I pray that every part of our lives would be living worship. That, that us coming here and worshiping together for a few hours on Sunday does not restrict us or limit us or excuse us or replace a life of worship. God, that that's how the gospel is shared so powerfully. So Lord, I pray today that, that through this account and through our version of breaking open the ointment and wiping his feet, that that story will go with the gospel forever. We thank you for this, Lord. Thank you for this story. We thank you for this account. We thank you for what we're learning through your book. Thank you, Father. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen.